Hello. Welcome all to our eighth Future of Law webcast. I am Josh Becker, your host, the CEO of Lex Machina. Uh, what we're going to do today is um, share with you the keynote that I did at Legal Week in New York in February entitled The Case for Analytics. And as part of the keynote, I also introduced results from a survey that ALM did that was released um, at that time. And it was the first comprehensive survey about legal analytics. How is legal analytics actually being used today? How widely is it being used? How much is it being used? What is it being used for? Then we have a discussion with Scott Reitz. Uh, Scott is from uh, Cravath. He's the lead attorney from Data Analytics, eDiscovery, and Litigation. And Scott was with us and um, had a Q&A discussion with us there. So we will share all of that uh, with you and then come back for Q&A and any last discussion uh, at the end. Thank you. Legal Week 2018. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome, on behalf of ALM Intelligence, Patrick Fuller. Uh, thank you very much. Good afternoon, and welcome to this afternoon's keynote which will be a little bit of a different type of fireside chat. It's gonna focus on legal analytics and the future of data-driven law. So we are living right now in an age of unprecedented volumes of structured data, which is having a profound impact on, the, on numerous industries, including the legal profession. Today, we're gonna to walk through a variety of ways in which the use of data, analytics, and AI is helping to facilitate change within the legal profession. Now, I've been fortunate to know our first speaker for a number of years, and I am pleased to welcome to the stage Josh Becker, who is the CEO of Lex Machina. Josh. Good luck. All right, thanks everyone. This is a great honor, and I don't say that lightly because I was doing one of my favorite things at this show, which is walking around and seeing the startup companies, um, a little bit more towards the back, a little smaller uh, tables and booths, and um, thinking about that was me, right? That was us just a couple years ago at one of those back booths, a little bit on the fringes, you know, carrying around my coat, like trying to pigeonhole folks. And you know, we knew we had cool technology, we knew it could be useful, but we we're just trying to get folks' attention and you know, connect with some influencers and talk about our product. So it is a real honor and something I don't take lightly to be uh, speaking here today. Um, one also last thing as I kind of go forward is I I've worked in a lot of different areas of entrepreneurship and uh, I have never seen one like law where there's such camaraderie. I've always felt that people really are rooting for each other, that we're working together on this journey, and this conference also represents that to me, and it's an important part of that because everyone's here and we can chat with everyone uh, about it. So what I'm gonna talk about today, for about 20 minutes, is the case for analytics, and then we're gonna have a discussion around it and ultimately uh, get questions from, from you all as well. Um, so, but I hope to kind of level set, talk about some of the use cases, and, and tee up that discussion. So the first point is analytics have arrived. So whatever analogy you want to use, whether you like Jeffrey Moore crossing the chasm or the tipping point, um, you know, we used to talk about that for a long time at Lex Machina. How do we make this a must-have? But analytics have arrived. And one quote I was reflecting on in preparing this, there was uh, Jenna Green from the ML Litigation Daily when she was reviewing our comparator apps, and she said, we seem to be at a turning point where data-driven analytics are going to be an inevitable tool for both lawyers and clients going forward. And I think some of these data points represent that. We see more law firms hiring data scientists. Um, we see, you know, we visited in Silicon Valley by a firm I didn't 
think of necessarily as one of the innovators, and they have an AI machine learning task force touring the valley. Um, AMLAW, this AMLAW survey, uh, we'll talk about, uh, this ALM survey that we'll talk about um, that's just being released today um, that interviewed a lot of litigators, 321 litigators, and they found that 30% already said this is a must-have. And for Lex Machina ourselves, last year was a huge year of accelerated growth. In nine years, we had 45 of the AMLAW 100, and last year alone we added 21 uh, new ones. Um, so tremendous growth there. And part of this is also driven by outside counsel, right? Miriam Rivera, who we got to know and ultimately was on our board, uh, who was a deputy general counsel at Google and took Google public. This was a quote from her, right? She said, if I was Google today, I wouldn't all my outside law firms using analytics. So that's one of the reasons we think it's arrived as well when you see outside counsel demanding it. That's what we say every law firm and company needs analytics is because we feel analytics is becoming increasingly mission critical. And we see this for both the business of law and the practice of law. And we'll hopefully talk about both of those uh, today. But why is this? Why is this needed? Why is this moment? Well, a little bit of context, right? We are living in a, in a new world. And this was from the Altman Weil study in, in 2016. And what it said is that only 8% of law firm leaders were highly confident in their ability to keep pace with challenges of the new legal marketplace. And at the bottom right, you see some firms that are no longer with us. Um, I was actually speaking at Berkeley Law about two weeks ago. And their main auditorium was named after Brobeck, Flager, and Harrison. It used to be a big Silicon Valley firm and that no longer exists. And I commented on that. And they said, yeah, a lot of our rooms here are actually named after yeah, firms that, that don't exist anymore. Um, and, and so, um, but you know, kind of what are the drivers when we think about it? Well, one, there has been erosion of demand. And we've talked about that a little bit here at this, this conference. But more particularly, business has been lost to in-house counsel. There, I went to the AI workshop the first day. And they were talking about how um, Walmart itself has 1,200 lawyers, right? Um, uh, so we're seeing some of that. And we're also seeing clients demanding more efficiency and transparency as well as technology expertise. And so in this environment, as a law firm, you know, what do you have to do? Well, you have to differentiate your services. You have to provide measurable value. And these are all things that analytics are primed for, right? These are all things that analytics help you do. Is this you know, just law being uh, transformed by analytics? No, of course not, right? Analytics has changed lots of industries. I've got an example here from the finance industry. Um, mortgages used to be also a very um, reputation-based business, a very uh, local uh, relationship business. And then when the FICO score came along, it reduced lenders' list risk and uh, made uh, mortgages much more widely available and really changed that industry. Analytics, of course, have have uh, effect have changed and transformed the retail industry as well. So it used to be a big deal. We say, great, how many computers or in the case of Amazon, how many Kindles did we sell last month? Now it's really about what's the optimal price, the analytics use cases, what's the optimal price for a Kindle on December 11th? And the result is Amazon does uh, two and a half million price changes on a daily basis, right? What's the optimal price for you is what they're trying to figure out with their dynamic pricing. And of course, sports. We used to call ourselves Moneyball for Law. Um, and the A's were the first one to do this. And it's also an instructive uh, case study. We may talk a little bit more later um, about how analytics changed the sports industry. And um, the A's were the first to do it and got a competitive advantage. And now people have, are competing on how the extent to which they're adopting analytics, not just on analytics itself. But what about law? And I think this is part of the journey that many of us have been on uh, together. And the reality is analytics is changing. Um, the business and practice of law. And you know, here are some of the things that we can ask about. You know, what if, right? What if you could know how likely a judge was to grant a motion for summary judgment in your kind of case? Um, you know, what if you could quantify a company's history of settlement, say, in employment cases? Um, you know, what if you could know what your judge would say about a case before he or she says it? Uh, Scott, who's one of our other uh, panels we'll be discussing uh, later, I was seeing a presentation that he did, um, a CLE presentation internally at Cravath. And he had a list of these kinds of things, too, and saying, you know, here's a bunch of stuff that ought to have data-driven answers, right? There's a lot of things in law that really ought to have data-driven answers. And his answer, which is uh, my answer here as well, which is that now the good thing is we can answer a lot of these questions with data, right? What is market? Um, what if you could predict how long a case would take to reach to trial? These are some things that We've had a lot of anecdotal, anecdotal feedback on, right? A lot of anecdotes, as we say, but not a lot of actual data. And so this is what analytics 
um, brings to law is the ability to do this. Um, and we, including things like predicting legislation is um, you know, one of the use cases that we'll talk about. So we do see analytics changing both the business and practice of law. And for us, at Lex Machina, we've always talked about in terms of data-driven decisions, right? Driving data-driven decisions. So you will never replace the legal research, the reasoning, the experience that an attorney has. But the question is, great, you have a gut instinct on something. Let's check the data. You may make the same decision you are going to make before. You may make a di different decision. But it's really about now it's a data-driven decision. And how do you drive data-driven decisions about things like your strategy in front of a judge? Um, which clients to pursue, the best arguments to, to use for this particular judge. So we hear a lot of buzzwords now around AI, around uh, neural networks and machine learning and NLP. Uh, and we'll talk about some of that here today. And analytics particularly, we're hearing a lot about in the press. But what I want to talk about is what does legal analytics actually do, right? What, what are the use cases um, at the end of the day? As Clayton Christensen said, he's the master of disruption at, at Harvard Business School. And innovation will get traction only if it helps people get something that they're already doing in their lives done better, right? And that's something we've much take, taken to heart. So I'm going to talk about a couple things quickly. One is um, analytics to help biz win business and win cases. And then um, how to find information more quickly to do strategic work that they want to do, right? How analytics helps lawyers do that. So first on win business, uh, here's a slide about before legal analytics. And this was actually a slide from a pitch deck of an actual top uh, Silicon Valley litigation firm. And this is their pitch to a client to try to win business. And I hope the author of this is not in the room here today. Um, but what you can see is they use a lot of statistic sounding term. In fact, even one point saying statistically about this judge. And then they cite a random example, right? Or they say uh, something like he's susceptible to a motion um, for a stay pending re-exam and then one random example. Or he's not afraid to do something um, like find invalidity or non-infringement in a summary judgment stage. Now with legal analytics, we don't have to guess about something like that. We can present actual data to our client, right? Analytics are great at mining lots of data and finding patterns. That's really what machine learning is, mining data and finding patterns. Now we can go through those 800 cases, the machine in one click, and find how many times uh, that Judge Stark did that. And in fact, it was 14 times non-infringement at the summary judgment stage, 1.6% of cases, and then four in invalidity findings at SJ. And we can compare that now to the rest of the district, right? So this is, you go and see, um, again, this is what analysts can do that, that humans really can't do. Go through the, all 4,000 cases of this type in front of the district and uh, find out, actually, he's less likely to do it than his peers. So overall for the district, 2.1% of the times they find non-infringement at SJ and 47 invalidity uh, findings um, uh, in the case for the whole district, right? So we now know specifically how to answer that question. Another key use to win business is around outside, you know, the uh, law firms using data to pitch themselves to outside counsel and outside counsel using data to evaluate law firms. Here we've blacked out the names to protect the innocent, but you see a firm that can say, um, hey, do you know it takes us on average 468 days to marksmen in these kind of trials? This other firm that you use a lot of time, it takes them 632 days, right? You know, you should go with us in these kinds of cases. And again, the flip side of that is, is, client, is outside counsel now using data to evaluate law firms. And, you know, we asked as part of the survey that I mentioned, ALM asked uh, 321 litigators and um, uh, research folks, um, you know, does this, you know, to, how do you use data? And of the ones who use legal analytics, they validated this very clearly. They said actually 100% of folks who use, um, who use legal analytics said that, yes, this use case is correct. It does help us demonstrate competitive advantage um, and demonstrate our expertise. So what about winning cases? So they asked as well, does it help for winning cases? And 98%, which is quite extraordinary, 98% said, yes, legal analytics are helpful uh, for determining a strategy in front of a particular court or judge. And again, that's an extraordinary amount, and that's all about winning cases. So how does, it do, how does legal analytics help you do that? Well, here's an example from Ravel. Ravel was also acquired by uh, LexisNexis uh, last year and now being integrated. And you know, while I'm using a lot of sports analogies today, uh, Ravel has gone through the language 
Um, so stats tell one side of the story, but language, the reasoning, tells the other side of the story. And here's a, a quote from one of their users that using Ravel, they learned that a judge made it very clear that she does not like sports analogies. <laughs> so um, it would definitely not, never use, you know, moving the goalposts in front of this judge. And that's one of the ways it can be very helpful. Um, so it's really about data-driven resource. And you can analyze a judge's full history and um, pinpoint you know, distinction, distinctions and nuances um, that determine uh, how, you know, how you can speak, how this judge will hear. Um, a couple other examples, again, from Lex Machina. So this is about predicting lit you know, litigation timelines and spend. A critical part of, you know, Scott and I were just talking about pricing cases, right? Other use cases there. Just determining successful motion strategy, finding out the Judge Robinson, how often does she grant summary judgment in these kinds of cases? Or a motion to transfer? Well, 40% of the times she grants a motion to transfer, uh, less likely to do that than her peers who do it 60% of the time. Predicting judge behavior, right? This judge is two and a half more times likely to rule for the claimant than the defendant. That's critical information if you're going to go and try to win that case. And lastly, the comparator I mentioned. So we now have uh, a comparator. So again, you hit a button that goes through all the thousands of cases in the Northern District of California, all the thousand ca of cases that Judge Gilstrap has, and compares them on something like time to summary judgment. So you can now make your strategy. And we also have a, a law firm comparator um, and other comparators as well. But there's lots of other examples. We've seen some other great examples here as well. Kira is doing, um, con you know, using AI for contract analysis. And there's lots of business of law use cases that I've seen walking around as well. I know in the e-discovery industry, obviously you've been analytics for many years to um, dramatically reduce the time for review. I saw a, a cool company, Case Point, that um, has some cool technology around this as I was walking through the booths. Um, and I saw Ping, which is one of the companies in our legal tech accelerator that we run, that's here doing automated timekeeping and using AI um, and doing analytics on top of that timekeeping data. Um, Intelligize is another great example. This answers the question that uh, I had scrolling through and was one of the things in, in Scott's presentation as well, which is what's market, right? So Intelligize mines SEC data um, and M&A contracts and transactional agreements to help you figure out what's market. Case text is doing, using technology to find relevant case law when you've uploaded a brief. Vigilant was another company on our accelerator, so they're doing artificial intelligence to mine through social media data to um, figure out, uh, to basically a number of use cases for the legal industries and the insurance industries. Analytics can also predict legislation, as I mentioned. So this is legislative outlook, um, and they analyze things like how successful a legislator has been in getting information passed before, their position in the, in the legislative body, et cetera, to uh, predict the how, um, you know, which legislation is likely to pass. And finally, Lexis answers. So Lexis has invested $1.2 billion to build a flexible global platform. And one of the results is, is things like Lexis answers, where you're being able to dissect open questions, guiding a user to a set of research activities, and finding additional legal concepts associated with that, with that idea. And this is the next screen on that. And so the next question is, are use increasing or not? When we do our State of the Union here in legal analytics, is use increasing? And this also came out of the ALM survey very clearly. People who use it for these different use cases, like winning cases, 88% said they see their use increasing. Folks who use it for pricing projects said 90% they see it increasing. So the answer came as a resounding yes, that it's increasing. So just to wrap up, two things. So we think about it, we really envision the data-driven lawyer of the future, right? That's, I think, what we're, um, we're looking uh, to, to see. And, you know, who is that data-driven lawyer and what do they do, right? They start their day reading Law 360, getting up to date on, on everything that happens, so they're primed to start their day. They're getting alerts on their phone about their clients, what's happening, um, anything they should know about. Um, they're using analytics to size up an opponent, to establish value. In the future, they'll converse with a bot, you know, to do their research. So, this is some of the things that we look forward to when we think about the data-driven lawyer of the future and maybe some of the stuff we'll discuss today. And so to wrap it up, I just want to tie it back to uh, the rule of law. So for us, um, you know, Lex Machina started for, as a public interest project at Stanford Law uh, for three years. And that's really the mission. The mission was to bring openness and transparency for the law. And this ties in very well with the Lexis mission. This is something that Mike Walsh talks about all the time, is the rule of law, and defines it as these four areas. So in addition to transparency, it's about equality under the law, it's about independent judiciary, 
and it's about finding an accessible legal remedy. And for us, transparency is a critical piece of that, right? The law matters, and bringing transparency to the law matters. And for us, that's what analytics do at the end of the day. This is about openness and transparency, so we want to help lawyers win more business, win more cases, we want to help companies, but ultimately it's about openness and transparency that we think um, leads to um, you know, better outcomes and more justice. So uh, thank you very much for letting me share that. Bring up Scott and he'll introduce our discussion. Thanks everyone. We had a last minute switch on the agenda. I'm Patrick, I'll, I'll introduce oh, the, uh, the discussion. Uh, but I'm gonna introduce Scott. Uh, so Scott Rentz uh, is going to join us for this. He is the uh, uh, lead attorney for data analytics and e-discovery at Cravath, and he's going to join us for this chat. Jim, how are you? Good to see you. <laughs> All right, so let's kind of let's start first. I think with with following up on, on, on your presentation, what are lawyers using analytics for? Let, let's just start there. What, beyond what we just saw, what are they using analytics for? Um, so I think, uh, you know, Josh went through some of, the, some of the use cases and those are certainly, you know, some of the applications that are out there now. I guess as I, as I think about it and take a step back, um, I think there's sort of three different ways to think about, three different sort of categories of data analytics, um, and as the name might suggest, it, it, it depends on the data that you're talking about. So there's, there's external data, right? So this is sort of the public or quasi-public information. Um, a lot of the tools that Josh talked about are, are this kind of data. So how do we sort of suck down the SEC filings, the court docket, the uh, legal research archives, and mine that and make it more quantifiable than, than it's been in the past? Um, and that's very powerful. Um, another area is, is internal data. Um, so this is certainly uh, for, uh, for companies and for clients, this is, this is your data. This is really the e-discovery problem, right? Huge, uh, you know, vast quantities, terabytes and terabytes of information that needs to be mined for various purposes, um, you know, litigation, investigations, compliance, et cetera. Um, it's also the law firm's data. So how, how are law firms using analytics in order to mine the data that they have um, make more effective uh, decisions, provide more effective advice for their, uh, for their clients. And then, and then the third category, I guess, is what I would call um, not invented yet. Um, so you think about who are, the, who are the biggest users of data analytics right now, data scientists and, and, and AI. It's frankly Facebook, Google, um, uh, you know, tech companies. And what have they done, thinking particularly about Facebook, is they've invented their own kind of data, right? So Facebook is so powerful because they have created a data ecosystem where, you know, you're, as a user, you're interacting with them, you're providing information into their data ecosystem, and they're mining that, right? And so they're bringing, you know, huge, uh, getting huge value by bringing data analytics to their business. We don't... I don't think we really have that yet in law. Um, and I don't think we know what that looks like in law. But I think that that's sort of, you know, the future of analytics in, in law. And so you think about use cases, that's the future. It's the data type that we don't know about yet. It's great to mine everything that's available now and reuse it and use it better. But to really um, find that, that new data source that's not invented yet that we're really sort of creating in collaboration with our clients, I think that's, that's a whole uh, new and exciting set of use cases. I, I think that's right. And, uh, you know, we always said, uh, Lex Machina, you know, the, the best use cases are out there in the minds of our users, right? We want to just put the data out there, and, and they'll figure out the best use cases. And, you know, one example I was talking to someone earlier is there's a firm we were trying to sell for a long time and couldn't do it. And finally, one of the partners looked at it and said, hey, pull up this attorney. So we did. And they said, um, hey, I can use this for lateral hiring, right? And it will more than pay for itself just on that. And they, they bought the solution you know, because of that. And so um, I, I do think that, so like Scott said, right, it's just part of this is just putting the data out there. I think there's other data that will be mined in the future. But putting it all out there, letting the users figure out um, what the optimal use cases will be. Yeah, so let's go back to the practice of law. You, you spoke a lot about the practice of law 
throughout um, the, the deck, why can't lawyers continue practicing the way that they've always done it? This is a precedent-based business. I mean, everything in legal, for the most part, is based on precedent, right? So why can't lawyers keep doing what they've always done the way they've done it? I think you had some good stuff. Um, yeah, so I guess I sort of look at this as like sort of a supply side, demand side kind of uh, uh, answer um, on this, um, the imperfect analogy, but on the, on the supply side, essentially, we're drowning in data, right? Um, so we certainly see this every day in the e-discovery context. We simply, it's, it's very difficult simply just to keep up with the volumes and uh, proliferation of data types um, that exist out there. And on, on the demand side, the expectations are getting more and more challenging um, from our clients, from courts, from regulators, uh, from, um, you know, from, from, from the commercial marketplace in a deal context. How quickly can you get the deal done? Um, you know, how quickly can you get regulatory approval? Um, how quickly can you get the discovery project done? Those, those deadlines, if anything, are getting more and more challenging. So. Um, I think, quite simply, the existing tools are not up to the task of the changing expectations and the changing data environment that we're living in. So what you're saying is that the buyers and the, the end users evolve faster than the technology to some degree, or the applicability of the technology? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it may be a case where uh, expectations are, are even, are moving faster. Right. Than, than the technology and the uses. The technology moves pretty quickly too, but technology adoption always lags because you've gotta um, figure out exactly how to use it and how to sort of fit it into your existing um, workflows. But, you know, the, um, you know you, there's, there's, I think, an increasing expectation, wish that with computers, you have, you know, some push button ease, you know, maybe some judges, have the feeling that you know the, the the volumes are enormous, but you know now there's a computer that that can handle it. Um, we should be able to move uh, to move faster. Um, so um, you know, so I think there is a bit of a mismatch there that that, that analytics needs to address. And while we're on the subject of data, it, it would be helpful, I think, to to sort of break it into the two buckets because there are two buckets of it. There is the unstructured data, which is pro. You know, it's proficient law. It's it's everywhere. It's prevalent. And there's also structured data. So can you walk walk us through the difference between those two and, and how that plays into what we're talking about? Um, sure. Um, so, uh, you know, what one of the things that's really powerful about data analytics is it actually starts to blur those distinctions. I, I think this is a really important point about data analytics because, you know, I think the first time you hear it, the term is a little um, vague. And you may be saying, well, what is it? It's just statistics, right? What's the big deal? We've had numbers for a long time. Yeah, great, we're gonna use numbers to make more decisions, wonderful. What, what's different now, and what I think makes data, data analytics you know, important now, is that it's a set of techniques that's allowing us to transform uh, uh, qualitative information into quantitative information, right. uh, unstructured into structured, right? So using advanced AI techniques, taking you know, vast quantities of emails or documents or court dockets or um, uh, SEC filings and being able to extract features from it that allow you to search and categorize and filter and all the things that we like to do with structured data. So um, they're both important. I don't, but, but I would say that sort of the, one of the critical takeaways is that data analytics means that they're, that they're merging. There's not a bright line distinction between those two anymore. Uh, I do want to pause just very quickly here. Uh, for those of you that have questions, uh, you can go to slido.com. Uh, I believe the hashtag is uh, LegalWeek18, um, and you'll be able to submit your questions, and we'll take those at the end of our, uh, the program here. So it's slido.com, uh, and only submit softball questions, please. <laughs> yeah. um, we appreciate that. Um, another hot topic, it's been all over this, I, I led a panel on it on, on Monday, is is AI, and uh, let's, let's kind of get into that a little bit because uh, AI is, is right now having a dramatic impact on law. Um, how? I'll let you start with that, Josh. Sure, well, to some extent, you know, AI underlies everything I talked about, right? So we think about NLP and machine learning. NLP is all about taking that unstructured data and you know, doing that text analytics and helping turn that into structured uh, data. 
and trying to figure out in, you know, human intent, right? Looking at the, the human speech. And that was one of the key things. When we started, we went over to the, uh, you know, as a public interest project, went to the computer science department at uh, Stanford and said, hey, can you help us with this, right? And they tried standard NLP machine learning techniques and they didn't work for law because law is its own, we say, crazy verbose language, right? And so they had to develop a proprietary, you know, um, uh, data classification system. So the, um, it, it's very difficult to do that. But that's really what NLP, NLP is, and machine learning is really about finding those patterns in data. So to some extent, this underlies all these things that are already available today, right? Everything I talked about, that's available today. But the hope is that AI, as you get into neural networks and deep learning, will have even more of an influence going forward. And um, I think that's what's really exciting. Um, but I also think that, you know, you had a really good sort of framework around this, because I think the question is, you know, people talk a lot about robot lawyers and, you know, will, um, you know, will, will this replace, you know, will lawyers be replaced? And, and the answer really is no. I mean, this is, um, in almost all use cases, it's really about helping people uh, do their jobs better um, and really taking those, you know, machine learning is really only good at very repetitive tasks and helping to, um, uh, helping to automate those. Um, but I think you have a, a good formulation of it that I liked in your, in your piece. Um, yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, that's the question of whether robots replace lawyers is probably the question that I get more than, more than any other, you know, and it's sort of half in jest and half like, oh, man, maybe this is something I really need to worry about. Why did I spend all that money on law school? Um, and, um, you know, there's, there's one answer that you hear a lot, which is, you know, law is much more than about you know, processing information, it's about judgment, and it's about advocacy, and it's about, you know, trust, and, you know, the personal relationship, and all of that is absolutely right, it's true, and it's right, and that's, you know, I think what probably most lawyers, like, truly, um, you know, enjoy about the practice of, the practice of law, um, but let's face it, frankly, it is also about information processing, and so the, and there's a lot of lawyers who spend a lot of time doing information processing. So the question is, will the lawyers and the lawyer time being spent doing information processing go away because you've got this great new information technology that makes it cheaper and faster to do that? And to answer that, I look to this concept called the rebound effect, which is a concept uh, in environmental economics. And it basically says that when you make something cheaper and easier to do, people use it more. Right, and so in the environmental economics context, you think about light bulbs, right? They've gotten uh, so much more energy efficient over time, uh, and what's the result? We leave the lights on. Uh, we install more lights, we, leave, we have more street lights, but they stay on longer. Um, you know, we no longer sort of turn off the lights as soon as we leave the room. That used to be sort of, you know, uh, a, a canon rule in my house um, that you don't really encounter as much anymore. The reason, because it's cheaper. And so as you look at the sort of energy usage devoted to lighting uh, over the last 100 years, it's actually gone up, right, even as the technology has gotten better. And so there's, a, there's, a, there's a, an analogy to, um, to data analytics and the law, which is that we're making it cheaper to process information effectively, making it cheaper and faster. And so we'll expect that we'll do more of it. And the question is, is the, you know, the savings in time and money going to be you know, bigger than the increase in demand and usage of this stuff. And that's a question that remains to be seen. But I think it's safe to say you're not going to see the, the sorts of advantages, uh, the sorts of decrease in, in usage that, um, that you might expect, because essentially our appetite for information is insatiable. So the cheaper we make it, the more we're going to use it, and probably roughly equivalent amount of time that we're going to spend as lawyers dealing with information and using information. So as we talk about lawyers and the law and AI, and you mentioned repetitive knowledge tasks, there's a lot of the practice of law that's repetitive knowledge tasks. There are going to be certain practices that are going to be more impacted by this than others, right? So I mean, we think litigation, there'll be aspects of it. Early case assessment will be, I think, more accurate. We're going to have much more data to mine through much faster. So there could be a corollary effect to that, that we're not going to take as many cases to trial as we might have previously because of the data that we have. But there are also other aspects of law that could go 
a little bit more to the automation side. And what, aside from litigation, what could we be looking at in terms of practices that are impacted by AI? Um, I mean, one that I think about is, is, is the due diligence process in a, in a uh, corporate acquisition. Um, you know, and here it's, uh, this is, you know, sort of speculative and I have an ongoing debate with a colleague about this, but, um, you know, right now due diligence is primarily about reviewing the contracts of a company and figure out sort of what their legal obligations are and you want to make sure you understand that before you acquire them. And that's, and there's a ton of contracts, so it's a pretty expensive process and there's new tools that are really uh, interesting and exciting for analyzing contracts, which is great. Um, to go back to sort of the rebound effect idea, though, question is, what happens as you make that super cheap? Do you get rid of a lot of due diligence lawyers, or does due diligence expand in terms of what you're trying to do, right? So you might foresee a situation where you're no longer just concerned about analyzing the contracts of a potential target, but you want to understand their FCPA risk. Well, how are you going to do that? You want to understand, you know, are there, are there books what they purport to be. How are you going to do that? All of that's going to mean sort of sucking in more information into your information processing engine. And even if you're doing it much more effectively and, um, uh, and cheaply, you may end up, you know, doing, uh, you know, spending just as much time and effort doing it. So what you're saying is that we could be, while decreasing the complexity and making things simple, we could also then be increasing the complexity of what we're actually doing which is the cycle of life in law. Oh, absolutely. Right, yeah, okay. Yeah, I was mentioning too, we have a uh, company, our accelerator, Deal Whip, and they were former M&A associates that wanted to make the process better, so they, they're going off and working on a, uh, a platform um, around that, but basically felt that a lot of the work that associates were doing, um, or that they were doing, you know, could have been done by someone with a lot less education, right? So if that does, if some of that does get automated or uh, made easier with their platform, it gives associates more time to actually learn the nuances of M&A law and, you know, so they can grow up to be senior lawyers and, and um, be doing that strategic advice themselves. Yeah, and I think you're going to see more compliance and regulatory where there's definitive questions and answers that can be automated into self-service applications within the business. I think you're going to start to see more of that work go, especially as the legal departments have taken on more of that work over the years and expanded. They're looking for ways to push some of that away, so to speak, from their purview and, and automate aspects of it. Uh, we talk a lot about AI and analytics. Um, I, I know there's going to come a day one time we all shop at Amazon and we get that when we get done checking out. It says, customers like you have also purchased X. Right. And there will be a day when we walk into a legal department and say, we've looked through everybody you've always hired before and customers like you have also hired people like this. And here's the client team that we've chosen for you based upon everybody you've ever hired before. So we're getting to that point. But I think we confuse sometimes the deep data dive and analytics and analysis with analytics. So what's the difference between the two? Well, I think, you know, to do true machine learning, you need millions of data points, right? So when Google's helping you uh, identify, identifying cat photos, that's because they had a million people like, go through and say, this is a cat photo, and therefore they're able to apply that across a huge data set. So some people talk about machine learning, really aren't doing true machine learning. You right. really need millions of data points to do true machine learning. And even with Lex Machina, we only got to um, recently uh, be able to do that. And partly that's because, you know, we get this data set from Lexis, right? They're adding 13 million documents every day. You know, the, the data, I think it's 2.5 petabytes, 150 times the size of Wikipedia. So we're getting access to some of this and we're able to do true machine learning. And then I think you can answer some of those questions. Right. And we want to use it for, um, uh, you know, for people using our product. We want to be able to say, hey, you know, you're a partner. This is how you've used, you know, you clicked on judges. You've used... Um, you know, the, uh, the, the um, attorney comparator. Um, but partners like you have also used these following features, right? So we want to use it for the usage of the product. But I think also you see more sophisticated machine learning. I and mean, imagine if you could, and this is not something we do today, right? Imagine if you could say uh, the machine could um, have an algorithm. So if a, uh, if a company that uses a certain law firm lost three cases in a row with that law firm, could ping other law firms who have also... Um, worked with that, that, uh, that client, that customer, and say, hey, this customer, you know, this law firm just lost three cases in a row. Maybe it's a good time to ping that general counsel, right? So there's, you know, infinite uses you could think of for machine learning uh, around some of these ideas. Yeah, and I don't think, if anybody's ever seen those studies, I don't think anybody's ever going to look at a blueberry muffin uh, the same way with some of the AI studies because they have blueberry muffins and pugs that they'll put in pictures, and you have to go through yes, no, yes, no, 
is, is it a pug, is it an animal, or is it a blueberry muffin? And it's, it's interesting and fascinating to sort of watch how many times we're wrong about what is what. And it's, it's, it's an interesting uh, area. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about, within analytics, what are the important elements of analytics solutions? What needs to be in place in order for it to be successful? Yeah, I think well, we've talked a lot about this. And um, I mean, for me, it's really, I think, three things, right? So to be true analytics, it has to be customizable, right? That's what we say, you know, this has to be a partner tool. This has to be in the hands of folks who are, you know, are, are not, you know, we say, well, you outsource a Google search. No, you wouldn't, right? You've got to be able to slice and dice by any time frame, not like, hey, show me, the, you know, this quarter compared to the other quarter. You need to be able to drill down and say, great, let me see the last six weeks. Now they compare that to the six weeks before that. Or let me um, see only cases involving you know, Samsung in front of this judge in this time frame. You have to be able to slice and dice any way you right. want it and be able to then do that analysis. Secondly, it has to be accurate, right? So as we know, there's a tremendous normalization problem in this data. We always talk about Quinn Emanuel being the most misspelled law firm in the country. Um, we have uh, hundreds of, of misspellings of that that we get from the PACER that we have to normalize. Um, but there's also other details, right? So when we analyze in areas like New Jersey and Delaware, where you have a lot of folks appearing pro hoc vice, PACER's wrong almost 40% of the time, right? So if you're trying to do true analytics and competitive intelligence, you have to fix that. We're also in PACER, anytime you move, if you've been at one law firm for 40 years, you move to a different law firm, PACER signs all your cases ever to the new law firm, right? If you're an associate at Microsoft and you move, now it's going to give Microsoft to the new firm when actually, you know, you were just an associate who worked on it at one firm. So there's lots of things to clean up there, and, you, and therefore the quality of data really matters. And um, that's another thing. It's been also great to get from Lexis because they have 30 years of metadata and things on all this, this data sources that they have and judicial annotations, et cetera. Um, but lastly, practice-specific is really important right. as well. So if, if it's not practice-specific, then, you know, you're going to get misleading information. So there's an example. Uh, I, I know Darren's here. One of our guys was, was talking about an example in, in, um, uh, in, uh, in Delaware where if you look at one level, you'd say, hey, patent cases in Delaware, oh, it's, uh, the, the court is plaintiff-friendly. Um, but then you realize if you're a da true data-driven attorney, you realize, hey, there's a lot of ANDA cases in Delaware. ANDA is a very specific subset of patent litigation deals with pharmaceutical litigation, you say, oh, I need to exclude those because this is not a pharma case. And once you exclude them, it looks about more like 50-50. And then you say, oh, well, let's look at Judge Andrews specifically. We well, look at Judge Andrews specifically, and actually, it's, I forget, it's three to one or five to one, he actually rules for the defendant, right? So if you're just looking at a very high level and you tell your client, oh, this is a very plaintiff-friendly district, um, that's going to be wrong, right? So you have to be sophisticated in your use of data analytics, and you need tools that um, that give you that kind of sophistication. In terms, so in terms of, of bringing analytics in inside the law firm and selling it inside to the partners and, and having those conversations with them, what are the elements that need to be in place in order for you to be successful in that endeavor? Um, yeah, you know, I think that, uh, that lawyers often get a, get a bad rap for being uh, technophobic. Um, and I, I don't think, by and large, they are. Most of my conversations with lawyers at Cravath, um, people are excited about the technology. Um, if, you know, if anything, the excitement may sort of you know, outpace the reality. They want, they, want to, they want it to work even better than the state of the art uh, does. So um, you know, to my mind, it's uh, having a successful conversation is um, uh, you know, first of all, figuring out what's the technology that's really going to solve the problem I have. Let's not just bring in the technology because it's cool and it has a pretty pretty picture, but how do we, um, uh, you know, what's the specific problem? Is this the kind of thing that's going to get people excited? And then, do we have the people and the process in place to actually use it? Because almost everything, you know, every data analytics technology requires uh, lawyers to do things in either a slightly or sometimes dramatically different way. And that can be uh, uncomfortable and scary, and it can create some risks and problems, and there's going to be bumps along the road. So you need a team that can help shepherd that through, that understands the analytics very, very deeply, can serve as sort of a trans serve in sort of a translator function between what the technology does and what the lawyers need it to do. Um, and if you don't do that, I think that's you know that's where lawyers can get burned and sort of turn on technology because they'll say oh yeah, I tried that, it, it didn't work, mm -hmm. right? 
and they'll never try it again or they won't try it for a long time. Definitely. And my question always is like, well, you know, what did you do and who was there to sort of, you know, when you hit that first speed bump, did you give up or did you sort of say, oh, wait, you know, we need to look at it a slightly different way and we need to change how we're thinking about the problem and do it a little, little different way. And if you don't have that sort of team, those people with those, you know, that can marry the data analytics and the legal skills, then I think, um, I think you're um, going to have a hard time. Okay. We're, we're coming down the home stretch, so a reminder to everybody, get your questions in. Uh, I think we'd be remiss. We have a lot of people in the audience that are from uh, law schools as well. Um, and I did a panel uh, last week in California uh, talking about the multi-generational um, effect that's going on right now in legal. And if you look at the data, there's about 47, 48% of um, AMLA 50 firms that have uh, 47, 47, 48% of them are millennials. Right, which is which brings in, uh, first of all, it's a lot of student loans, but it brings in, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, a, a different working dynamic. Uh, a lot of them are digital natives, right? They, unlike us, they grew up with tech, not knowing any different with technology. Uh, but it also means that the practice of law is changing, as, as Josh has walked us through. So, what does that mean for their career prospects and their professional development? What, what's the impact that this is going to have on them? Oh God. Yeah, well, I'll have a comment. I'll let you come. So I'm actually speaking at Columbia tomorrow. I'm going to do a lot of speaking. And I think this is a tremendous advantage for them, right? That's what I tell the, these law students, right? Because they can come in fully equipped with these technologies, and they can become experts at their firm and leaders in their firm in adoption of, of new technology. Um, so I think it's really a tremendous um, opportunity for uh, those who can, you know, those who kind of grab onto it. And, you know, we're seeing more and more interest, I'd say, at law firms. Uh, sorry, at law schools, and it varies widely. Some, um, you know, some, you know, big top-tier law schools are still doing very little in this, um, and you've others. You know, obviously Stanford's done, done, you know, some good stuff with the Codex, but you know, it's really, it's still very far and, and few and far between. Vermont Law is doing some great work. Dan Katz, who may be here, has been one of the pioneers um, in the Midwest, and with and Dan at, at Michigan State, they've had, you know, you know, every patent. Uh, um, you know, a lawyer in their classes, you know, um, been, have access to our stuff. So, you know, it's still very few and far between, but I think it's a great opportunity. Uh, I agree it's a great opportunity. Um, you know, my, my advice would be, um, you know, if you're thinking that this is going to automate out information processing, I think you're, I think you're wrong. And so, you, um, and so you need to expect that you'll need to sort of bring you know, an information processing capability to your legal practice. Um, that's not going to go away, but what that means is changing, right? So it may not be the information processing as in reading a lot of documents, reading a lot of contracts, right? One by one, putting together a summary report. It's going to mean bringing data analytics techniques. And although there's great data scientists and, um, you know, great tools that I think we'll be using, I think lawyers have an essential role to play uh, in this. And Josh, you alluded to this earlier, which is knowing what questions to ask, right? So the data's there, the tools are there, but if you don't know that you need to exclude this certain type of patent case from this data set, if you don't understand the data set well enough to know that that's in there and that it might skew the data in a way that's not gonna make it right, then you're not doing your job as a right. lawyer. And that, that may not be sort of, you know, what people think of as a typical lawyer job, but I think increasingly uh, it will be. Uh, before we get to the questions, uh, which, by the way, are all anonymous, so this is just like Twitter, um, <laughs> we'll get some tough questions in here. Um, let's ask about the firms that don't adopt analytics. What's going to happen to them moving forward? You, you, you showed some names on there that were blasts from the past um, that no longer exist, and it's not just because of analytics, obviously, but, but those firms that don't use analytics in a data-driven world, what's their future? Well, I, I can use an analogy I know that you like um, because it's an interesting time because on one hand, we're definitely at a tipping point. This is definitely happening. There is no turning back. On the other hand, uh, I think as Bill talked about the first day, you know, you still have um, firms doing very well, right? Profits per partner going up, record highs. And so they might say some firms, hey, we're doing just quite well. You know, we don't need to go there. Um, and I think one analogy uh, we talked about was the Philadelphia Phillies. And I'm from Philadelphia. Go Birds in the Super Bowl. And, um, all right, that's good, I like it there. And uh, the analogy, so when I was out you know, pitching venture capital firms six years ago, I would always say, 
Um, you know, look at the Phillies. They're riding high right now. They've got a couple of great players, um, you know, feature Hall of Famers. Um, but at the same time, there's a study of 100 sports franchises, and the Phillies rank dead last in the use of data and analytics. And I said, hey, they can still coast for another few years, but eventually they're going to have to adopt. And that's what happened. Those players got older, got injured, um, and guess what? They were, you know, had the worst record in the league three years in a row, and all of a sudden they hire a general manager steeped in analytics, right? And they're investing heavily in analytics. So I think you can still keep do, you know, going very well for a number of years without it, but eventually um, you're going to have to adopt. Yeah, yeah I, I, I agree with that. Okay, so let's go into a couple of questions here. Um, so the first question that we have is, do you retroactively compare the case outcomes to the analytics-driven predictions, and what's the accuracy range uh, for those predictions? That's a good question. Well, I, I would say, um, you know, any, part of any machine learning is preparing a gold set, right? So you, it's all about training data. So you, you take a subset of the data, um, you, you hand code it in, and then you compare how the machine does um, with the actual results. So I, I think, if I'm understanding this correctly, um, this is fundamental to um, the development of, of machine learning um, and, and fundamental to, to analytics is you do that training data until you get a confidence, and you don't release it, we don't, you know, until you get a confidence score uh, that's high enough. So um, if, I'm answer, if I'm understanding it correctly, that's really fundamental to how we do product development. Yeah, there's another question out here we'll take real quick is, is what can analytics do to manage outside counsel more efficiently? Uh, and I would, I'll throw in there effectively as well, too, uh, just to get the two E's in. Well, I, you know, I'll say a couple of things. One, we, you know, we talked about outside counsel selection, right? So we do have um, folks that, you know, use Lex, you know, with companies, um, Walmart, big companies, some we can talk about, some we can't, you know, using analytics when they're not looking at outside counsel, right? Who's the, who's got the most experience in front of this judge? Who's optimal for this case? We also spend analytics, which you are a pioneer. When I was here wandering the floor, you know, six years ago, I'd run into you and you were doing uh, spend analytics and you have that um, as well and that's been adopted more and more by outside counsel to, um, you know, uh, kind of, and some are really trying by hand and hopefully we'll do it automatically over time to match spend data with quality data. Right, yeah, and there was, you know, we used to do interesting things with that too in terms of, uh, looking at, you know, for example, bringing diversity in and then breaking that down, uh, not only just by the practice area and by the matter, but by the damages sought or the valuation of the matter and looking at the trends. So is a firm hitting their diversity targets according to the outside counsel guidelines? They are, but when you look deeper into it, it's, it ended up being a lot of lower level work and it wasn't actually more of the bet the bonus or bet the company uh, type of work. And so on one hand, you were achieving the objectives that were set out. On the other hand, you weren't really advancing the mission the way that the, the company wanted their outside counsel to advance the mission. So it gave you both sides of the story. Yeah, I mean, I would just add to that. I mean, I think uh, uh, companies are really interested in, in using this uh, analytics and technology to manage outside counsel. And so for outside counsel, you know, speaking on outside counsel's behalf, um, you know, you need to get ahead of the. You need to get ahead of the curve. Um, if if your clients are going to be looking at how you're doing, uh, uh, how you're doing billing and the efficiency with which you, you know, get to certain stages in a case or uh, resolve certain types of transactions, that's information that that you need to start tracking internally, so that you you know are ahead of not ahead of, but you can you know, sort of um, make sure that you're, um, you know, hitting the expectations of your clients and that they're not surprising you saying, hey, by the way, you're 50%, um, you know, more inefficient than, than your competitors. Uh, we're three questions in. We finally got the billable hour question. So uh, let's go to that one. What is the potential for analytics to change the billable hour paradigm? That's Great interesting. question. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I can't say I know the answer to that. Um, I mean, one, one thing that occurs to me is that analytics could make um, your, um, you know, your legal spend more predictable, what it costs to do certain things. If you're doing that well inside of a firm, you may feel that you're more, you can more comfortably make those predictions. I think that's probably one of the things that's held back, uh, you know, that's made us hold on to the billable hour as much as possible is the difficulty of making predictions about um, fixed fee and alternative fee arrangements. So perhaps analytics allows you to, to allows firms to, to get to a place where they're more comfortable, and you know therefore going to start to um, you know push not alternatives to the billable hour more more aggressively. I think that's right because if you do have fixed fee without analytics, 
you can often have the wrong incentives, right? right? Um, if you haven't done the analytics advance to see right, how long this should really take, then all of a sudden a, a law firm bids a certain amount, and then, hey, oh, we're almost over this time. Let's settle this case, even though that actually wasn't the optimal outcome for, for the, the, the client. So it's like your friend you mentioned who's really putting together this whole um, you know, pricing uh, uh, you know, piece with lots of data at a law firm, right? If you don't have analytics, um, then you know, that's why we have problems with fixed fees and why they haven't fully taken hold, because you, you can have bad incentives. Yeah, I think the other part that we have to go back to is that for a, lot, for a lot of people in the legal profession, not just legal departments, the billable hour is still a unit of measurement in terms of value, right? So if, if we did something for $100,000 on a transaction, and by the billable hour, it would have cost them $250,000, it was a great deal, right? And the result could still be the same, but if it would have cost $50,000, then I think there's, it's a different perspective. And I think we have to get past that, the point of the billable hour being viewed as the measurement tool in order for that question to really help shift that paradigm, because I think that still is the challenge. Um, here's another really good question, is do we feel that AI is being thought of as a solution uh, before the problem is well-defined? I, I love that, because I used to have salespeople that would walk into rooms sometimes and say, hey, I've got a great solution, tell me your problem. Right. Which is like walking into the doctor, he gives you a penicillin shot, then asks you what's wrong with you. Um, so is that a problem? Do you think that we're, we're putting this too high on the pedestal at this point? So AI is, you know, certainly a buzzword, right? And, you, and you know, when people start talking about it, your, um, you know, your, your, your skepticism, you know, uh, shield should go up. Um, but, and AI is also very vague and amorphous. I think people have often talked about AI as sort of, you know, it's this ever receding thing. AI is the thing that computers can't do quite yet that we hope they'll be able to do. Um, but, you know, right now I think AI does have, you know, sort of commonly accepted, uh, you know, something close to a, you know, definition of the kinds of things that we're, what we're calling AI. What we mean by it uh, is, uh, is machine learning, so an ability to right. build, you know, very sophisticated models of the world based on lots of data. And then, um, you know, sophisticated human-computer interaction where computer behaves in ways that we think of as human. So speech recognition, natural, uh, natural speaking ability, being able to see and distinguish objects. So that's what, that's what AI, you know, sort of AI, AI I think, you know, means, means to me and I think to, to many people. Um, you know, are, are, we, um, are, we, are we using it because, because we can? I, you know, I personally don't. I don't think that's the case. I think that, like, you know, uh, that, we're, that, we're, that, that the information problem that we're dealing with in law is a very real one. Um, and that AI in some ways makes it more challenging for us because it creates more information um, and, uh, and allows more information to be sort of processed. So if we don't grapple with it, um, then I think that we're, you know, we're, we're at risk of, um, of being left behind. Uh, I'd like to answer that, although I hope we get to shouldn't judges be replaced by robots. Um, I see that moving up the, yeah. moving up the charts here. Um, but, um, uh, you know, real quick, so we, you know, we do these rule of law webcasts, and we did one with Gino Grady and with Greg Lambert, and we asked them for advice for our accelerator companies, um, for our legal tech accelerator, and the, the first thing they said is, don't use AI when you're pitching me. <laughs> so uh, that was like a sign of AI, you know, this clear AI fatigue among the buyers. Um, but so I think the key is, yeah, sometimes, um, you know, a, a term can get overused too much. So just focus on the use case. Uh, that's my advice to startups. Focus on the use case you're solving. Uh, at some point, you know, buzzwords become, uh, become counterproductive. Yeah, I think we have to answer the, uh, the, the, the judge's question. I'm not sure we, any of us want to, <laughs> but um, yeah, that's got 12 thumbs up. Um, well, it's, so the question, should, should judges be replaced by robots? I mean, it's really interesting. There are applications out there. Um, you know, uh, the one that I'm aware of is an, is an application that helps judges make bail determinations. And so it's doing analysis of, um, you know, failures to show up in court and, you know, arrests, you know, post, uh, you know, sort of subsequent arrest, post-arrest, you know, pretrial um, uh, by people out on bail. And um, they can be very effective, I think the danger people talk about with these, and I think it's a real one, is that you can allow statistical differences to have sort of troubling 
ethical and judgmental implications. So for example, differences in race or class or gender that could be infecting that data and causing judges to over rely on it and may essentially make biased decisions based on data that hasn't, you know, hasn't sort of been, um, you know, the, the implications haven't been thought through on what it, um, on what it's saying. And there's, you know, there's, there's this thing where if you, if you, you know, something may sort of be 55-45, but everybody looking at it is gonna pick the 55 option, right? So you could have, you end up sort of failing to take into account individual distinctions between cases because there's, there's data behind it. You can become blind to that. So when you, in the early days of Lex Machina, were you having conversations with judges around where you aggregated all that information around how other judges have ruled on similar motions and then if you look, say, well, this was overturned on appeal, right? Does that, at some point, does that come back to influence a judge's decision on how he or she may rule on something knowing that similar judgments have you know, resulted in, in that being you know, appealed? I think the government sector is not, this might be a shock to people, is not the earliest adopter of technology. And, um, and I think many startups stay away from government because it's so difficult to sell. But I think for all the reasons you talked about, government needs to adopt these technologies, right? Again, because we started out as a public interest project, we did talk to a lot of judges. But, you know, it's still the ones who get it and are interested in it is still pretty small. So I think rather than replacing them, and there are risks, I read the same study you mentioned, um, that Scott mentioned around the, the bail system, um, I just hope all, all judges have access to products like Lex Machina, um, you know, products like Ravel, which as I think I mentioned is being integrated in Lexus Advance. Um, my little plug there. Um, the, um, uh, because they, they should, you know, they, I want them to see, hey, I have a bias here, right? Like, let yeah. me run there, like, let me see what my biases are. Um, let, me, uh, let me see how I compare to other judges. And again, it may change my ruling, it may not, but at least I see whatever, you know, what other people are doing, how other people are handling these kinds of cases. And maybe I have some unconscious bias, and I need to really you know, work on that. Uh, by the way, we are making a, an executive decision here. We're waiting the thumbs up. So if you used your name, um, that's gonna instantly boost uh, the question. So we have a question here on how analytics can help us take more risk, which I love this question, right? So can analytics help us take more risk and, you know, is there a role for this in pricing engagements? Absolutely, contingencies. But I think that's a great question. And you kind of alluded to that to some degree uh, earlier, right? The more information that we take in, the more that we understand the risk around us, do we then push forward into areas where historically we wouldn't have gone, but now we're going to take more risk because we have more data on which to make decisions? Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess it, it depends on how you think about, you think about risk, um, you know, are you more scared of the unknown risk or the known risk? If you can, the analytics right. will help you quantify the risk, and so then maybe you feel more comfortable pricing it, uh, and you know, and 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 moving forward um, on an engagement based on that uh, risk. Uh, if the risk is is unknown, you're you know you're more in a, you're, you're in a gambling business more than you are in a um, you know in a legal business. Yeah, I think like for a company, right? If you're looking at Patents, right? And, you know, if you have analytics on patent litigation, right. you might say, "Yeah, I'm more willing to move into this area because I see there's not a lot of litigation in this area, or I at least understand the litigation area, so I am willing to take this, you know, a risk, you know, into this area, even though it's more litigious." So I think there are areas, but I think you do have to be be, be careful of feeling like you know too much. Um, um, and by the way, we're not liable uh, if you take risk. But um, you know, so so I think yeah, I do have to be concerned. All right, so I think we're we're almost out of time. We'll ask one more question here. Because uh, we've talked a lot about robot lawyers, um, and so we have anonymous that says uh, robot lawyers are not coming for all of our jobs, but they are coming for some of the jobs, which I I do agree with. Um, which areas are the most at risk? So, um, right. So sort of uh, um, the you know kinds of jobs that are just pure um, uh, in, pure information processing. I mean, document review. Um, you know, review of lots of, you know, due diligence types of review, um, uh, you know, are the kinds of tasks that will change. I guess my advice for people who are doing that kind of work is you're actually in a good, you're, you're in a great, potentially great position because you understand this well and um, your understanding of this process is going to be very important to how um, this area evolves. And if you're thinking about it from a data perspective, um, you're going to be able, you're going to be one of the people who, help, who helps create 
the solutions. And you know, at least as I think about sort of e-discovery, the area that I know best, nothing out there you know, sort of gets rid of the need for looking at evidence and ana analyzing it. It just requires that you know, a higher level of skill uh, in doing that. And so sort of the really low level, um, easy calls um, you know, in, in doing that kind of analysis may no longer be done by people, but there's going to be more information, more complex information, and so we're probably going to need significant numbers, if not equal numbers, of sort of skilled practitioners who can um, do that analysis. Good. If you think about the, the baseball, our sports analogy, yes. you, know, um, you know, basically they didn't get rid of scouts, right? They just augmented it with these, this analytics department. So if you look at the McKinsey study, it's actually a pretty small percent of, of our overall legal jobs. And if you, I think it's about 15%, they said. But, you know, if you believe, you know, Scott's rebound effect, um, it could be, you know, it could even be less than that. So um, I just want to say, I know there's cocktail hour. Well, we could bring the drinks in here, Pat. We could. <laughs> I keep talking. But my, uh, my email is jbecker at lexmachina.com. And if anyone wants to, you know, or we'll, you know, probably hang out here, especially if someone brings us drinks, we'll hang out here if, if people want to, you know, talk more after. The answers actually get more creative the more drinks. Yeah, that, that, would, that would be fun. So I think it would be. There's true. a corollary there. All right, guys, uh, for everybody here, this is going to end this session. Thank you very much. Thank you to our panel. Uh, this was great. Great. Uh, thanks, all. Um, I hope that uh, you enjoyed that session. I know we had a lot of feedback about the slides and trying to get slides to people and having you access the slides. So hope we got most of that worked out. And uh, if not, you know, feel free to follow up with us, and we can, we can send the slides, and uh, you can check them out with the webcast that will be posted. Um, we did have a uh, question here, and if there's any other questions, let us know. Um, the question is about additional coverage areas for Lex Machina, state court data, other federal practice areas. Um, when will those uh, happen? <laughs> so I can't give great detail other than to say those are happening. Um, last year, you know, as, as many of you know, was a massive year of expansion into commercial and employment, into product liability, into bankruptcy. And then, of course, the Chancery Court of Delaware that we did at the end of the year and just had a webcast on um, yesterday. Um, and then we had our product liability report, the first ever insight into uh, product liability trends and uh, data. And that was also this week. So been a busy week here. Um, so we are working now on new practice areas for, for this year, a couple federal practice areas and and um, and a couple more states, but I can't probably can't say more than that. That at uh, this time, uh, or get in trouble with uh, with um, with our, our with your here's runs of marketing. Um, any other questions? I don't see anything else right now. So let us know again. Um, my email, as we said, there is jbecker at lexmocking.com. You can also um, click on uh, links. I know many of you were kind of contacting us during the webcast to get access to the slides and such. Is there any, I'm going to ask your who's here, is there anything else they should do if they want access to slides? No, we'll send out an email after the event and all the links should be clean and working in the email and I'm sure you'll have no problem accessing it. Excellent. Great. Well, thanks and um, please join us for the next one. Appreciate everyone's time. Thank you again.